Good morning. Um, I'm excited to be here. I hope you are. The words of the song that we sang a moment ago said, you alone, to you alone, may my spirit yield. And so I think it's just helpful to take a moment as we start out and just say, hey, there's a thousand reasons why you could be here. You could have been drugged by somebody. You could have been asked to come. Um, You could be here because you want to be. But like that doesn't change the fact that everybody in this room, we're all here together. And so just in a moment, I I just want to open us in prayer and just uh, whatever your reasons are for being here, I'm glad you are here. And I just want to um, ask that for the next half an hour or so, you just lock in and ask the Spirit of God, what does he want to show you? And so, um, Father, as we take this time now to open your word, we just pray that your heart would be made evident for us as microphones fall. And we pray that, Lord, you would just give us uh, the strength to pay attention, the strength to be locked in, the strength to be humble where we need to be. And may your kingdom come uh, here in Tremont, here in this room, um, as it is in heaven. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles, uh, if you have a pew Bible, to uh, page 812. We're ending the Sermon on the Mount today. Next week, uh, we will actually have people who have chosen to memorize portions of it, to recite it to us, which I think is going to be awesome, uh, as well as just different testimonies of how the Lord has used this uh, months-long series through the most important sermon that Jesus ever preached. But let me just start here. I think there is a very real danger where we sit today. You see, this morning in our text, we're going to arrive at the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. We will have spent three months looking into what he spoke on that hillside so many years ago to an enraptured audience. They were hanging on his every word as he shared information in ways they had never before seen or heard. You see, Jesus, he knew of the danger too. In fact, it's why he concluded his sermon in Matthew chapter 7 with three warnings. He talks about the broad and the narrow way. He talks about uh, true and false prophets and a tree that bears good and bad fruit. And finally, today in our passage, he looks at wise and foolish builders. What was he warning his audience about? And maybe more to the point, what may he be warning us about? I think it had to do with how one acts on what he just shared. The words that he spoke had a weight and a meaning, and he wanted to be sure to communicate that. You see... I think Jesus was warning us what happens if we treat what was meant for transformation as just another piece of information. In fact, the danger, I don't think, or the warning, could be more relevant today. Because of the digital age, and you're thinking the digital age, we've heard this a thousand times, consider this, the printing press, the 14-1500s, moving forward to the telegraph, to the television, to computers, to to internet, to social media. Today we come across more information than ever before. And what's more, a great deal of that information is decontextualized. Let me explain. 
Before the printing press, news was word of mouth, and it personally affected the person who heard it. For example, I'm out in my yard, and I'm working, and a neighbor comes running down and says there's been an accident at the Jones farm, and someone needs attention because a limb appears to be broken. And the whole town responds with meals and help. And because the news personally affected them, they acted upon it. You could do something about it. Now, fast forward to our day and age. You've probably already this morning, if not this week, read at least five to ten article headlines that may be entirely disconnected from your ability to influence. There was a bombing in Ukraine, another one in Istanbul. There was a vote recount in Colorado. And by the way, what's the scores of the Bears game? You see how quickly we have all this information coming at us. And then you want to add to that the fact that most of us seek out only the information we want to hear. Creating an echo chamber of sorts of the same opinions bouncing around and pinging around in my head. And so I come to the same conclusions. So what's the impact? What happens when we have so much information? Well, we're overwhelmed. We're paralyzed. We're indifferent. We're confused. Neil Postman, in what I would call almost a prophetic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in 1985, wrote the following. The tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment. How true that is. Or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It is disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, meaning we are full, bursting at the seams of information. See, Jesus, years before the media takeover of our lives, foresaw this challenge. It's as though in today's passage, he was saying this. Listen, not all information is created equal. In fact, the house that is your life may be built on fake news or your truth or any number of things that does not correspond to reality. If that's the case, buckle up. A storm is coming. However, my words, they are the only lasting foundation to build your life upon. Matthew chapter 7, verses 27, or 24 through the end of the chapter. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And, it, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So Jesus begins with this very simple understanding that his words are the only lasting foundation. That's it. There's really three things that we're going to look at today. Hear and do, hear and don't do, and then ultimately, the final authority. 
So I want you to uh, get into Jesus' character for a minute. Here is someone who, by trade, for a number of years now, had grown up with his father as a carpenter. And so he's giving an illustration about building a home. That would be like uh, my dad giving an illustration about how to wire a home, because my dad was an electrician. If he's going to give an illustration about that, odds are it's going to correspond to reality, and it's going to be something powerful and poignant. And so I'm going to sit down and shut my mouth, and I'm going to listen, because it's going to be good. So Jesus ends his sermon with this illustration of building a house. And if you get nothing else, realize that the foundation, the only words worth building upon are Jesus's. And he's after this idea that everyone's building something. Everyone is building something. And your house, it will be tested. Make no mistake. It's going to be tested. And so he says, anybody who hears these words of mine. Now he puts the possessive pronoun mine at the beginning to communicate this idea that these words are not just my words, they're actually the words of God the Father. And so he carries with them an inherent authority. He's trying to help people understand more than anything. These words, they're not just like another piece of information. They're not one of the 10 headlines that you read on your favorite news site this week. These words have weight. These words have authority. These words are mine, he says. And what are some of the things that we start to see when he talks about these words? We see the really simple illustration. Um, there are two builders. Both are building. Both hear the words of God. Both undergo stress or hardship. And maybe you would even point to this idea that there were some that these houses actually looked the same from the exterior. These homes, these buildings that people were putting up, putting together, regardless of the foundation, looked similar. So Jesus is already capturing these attention like, you really don't know. Foundations are underneath. To the naked eye, everything may look the same. And so he continues by saying, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I guess I would just ask this. As a parent, if you ask your child to do something, and you're like, I need you to, uh, to go clean my car for me. I'm at an important meeting, and I have somebody I'm going to be carrying in my car, and I want to make sure that it's clean and ready to go, but I'm a little bit busy. Would you help me by cleaning out the car this week? Yes, I'll get to it, no problem. And then the end of the week comes and I have my meeting and I get in my car and my car has not been cleaned. Um, I might be a little frustrated because as a parent, I asked something. They heard me. They repeated to me that they heard me, but they didn't do it. And I come back and I'm like, well, well how come you didn't do it? Well, Dad, I, I did a study on the Greek word for clean your car. It means clean the car. Okay, that's awesome. Um, how come my car's still not clean? Well, you see, you forgot to add like, the exact, and they start giving all sorts of excuses. And you start to sit here and go, okay, here's Jesus saying, here's these words of mind and does them. The word that Jesus says when he says and does 
is, is communicating this idea of someone who puts into practice, someone who practices, someone who does, someone who acts on, someone who follows, or ultimately, someone who obeys. And so ultimately, Jesus is saying this, if you are a disciple of mine, if you are somebody who claims the name of Jesus Christ, and you hear, you pick up the Bible, and you read these words, or you hear them preached and taught to you, and then your life looks no different that's actually a problem. It's a problem because one of the signature pieces of being a disciple is obedience. And it's not popular in our day and age. Who likes an authority telling them what to do? Much less when to do it and how to do it. And here's Jesus with this invitation. Look, you're building something. What are you going to build on? And then he says... In verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. He's talking about the wise builder. Wise in this context just simply means thoughtful, smart. You see, when we notice that Jesus does not contrast good and bad in this parable, but thoughtful and foolish. And I love how Dr. Dale Bruner says it. He says, there is an intelligence in morality and there is morality in genuine intelligence. One of the things I do as a, on a regular basis when I provide counseling for people is, is just kind of something that's how my mind works. Um, and I, I listen to their whole life story, and I ask tons of questions. And then in taking those questions, I create a visual um, so that you can look at it on a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, you can see like this little cycle that happens. And this is just my interpretation of the events. But the, the idea that I'm getting is that I want to try to uh, create a snapshot for how someone um, lives and breathes and thinks and then how they fail. And in what ways would be necessary to repent and to turn. And one of the things I always say is I'm creating this cycle and giving it to you and walking with you not to discourage you, but to inform you. Because I believe that intelligence should accompany repentance. I believe that if I hurt my wife by a negative word, if I was cutting toward her and I was mean and vindictive and all I said was, sorry about that. I'm sorry that you were hurt with what I said. I've just missed the point. The issue is there should be intelligence in my repentance. There should be this piece of me that is like, actually, I was grasping for power and control and in that moment it felt like a threat to me what you were saying and doing. And so I acted out of that threat and I pressed against you and I cut you down and I treated you poorly. Would you please forgive me for making our marriage about power and not about love? Can you see the difference? That type of repentance actually gets to the core and the heart and the root of the issue rather than, sorry you were offended at my words. It's a big difference. I love how it says it beat against that house and it did not fall. There was no fanfare. There was no celebration. There was no this big like, hey, look, this house survived. It was expected. 
built on the foundation of the rock, it was expected. When it says it was founded on the rock, that term rock is uh, the term Petra. Aside from being like the greatest 80s Christian rock band, um, it it was a term that conveyed the idea of bedrock. And here's why it matters. It, it conveyed the idea of bedrock, but bedrock, bedrock rather, that was not visible. It, it, it was only accessed through digging. So you would have to dig down to get to the bedrock. I mean, that in itself will preach. That whole idea, that whole concept of you have to dig to get to the foundation. So that's the wise builder. What about the foolish builder? What about the one who hears and does not do? And dare I say, what about the one self-included here this morning who hears these words and goes, meh, it's no big deal. This is Jesus' words, or these rather are Jesus' words to him. He starts off with the same phrase, whoever hears these words of mine, again equating the idea that these are authoritative pieces. These words are established by God. And then he says, and he does not do them. So he's not practicing them. He's not doing them. He's not acting on them. He's not following them. He's not obeying them. He just hears them. And they are to him white noise. Lost in a symphony of information that you are consuming moment by moment by moment. I challenge you. Ask yourself, how often is there a notification that i got to look at? Whether it pops up on my computer screen, whether it's something on the face of my phone, whether it's on my tablet, how often am I consumed by what I must know? The problem is, with that much information, with that much white noise, what really has priority and what really has authority? Jesus knew this. He knew our age, our cultural moment would be coming. And he's saying, hey, look, it's going to be harder than you think. It's going to be a lot harder than you think to drown out the white noise and to hear my voice. You see, the certainty that we see for both the one who built on the foundation and the one who didn't build on the foundation is simply this. They were both tested. It doesn't say that the severity of the storm was easier for the person who built on the foundation. It's a logical fallacy. You come to Christ and life gets easy and rosy and wonderful and no problems. It's actually the opposite. Jesus said in John 16, 33, that there will be tribulation for those who come to know me, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he's at this place where he's trying to communicate There is a pressing. That's what tribulation is. And I just have to ask the question of you. When you think about what you're building, what is your pressing? What is the thing that is pressing against you? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Is it financial? Is it relational? What is that thing that is testing the very foundation that you have built? Or are you so, as Neil Postman says, glutted, filled up, overflowing with information that you can't even discern it because it's just all white noise? And you're like, well, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Is that, your, is that your famous phrase right now? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. 
And I think what God is saying in this hour is like, look, I've made a path toward certainty. It's very clear. What is your pressing? Is it emotional, financial, physical? Because in verse 26, when he talks about how the storm begins to hit the house, he's highlighting the foolish builder. And just a side note, the, the Greek word, the root word for foolish is moros. It's where we get our word moron. I kind of like that. Kind of made me chuckle as, as I was reading this week. Oh, uh, this, is how, this is how I can be sometimes. I can be a moron when I build things. I can, I can start with Christ and then try to build and construct my own kingdom. And if I'm doing that, I'm a foolish builder. Or more to the translated point, I'm a moron. <laughs> now look what it says, though. It says the, the rain, everything beat against that house, the floods came. It's, it's indicative of what anybody in first century Palestine would know. That there are flash floods. In summer, it looks wide open and dry and safe to build on and easy to access. In fact, the land is probably a little bit cheaper because it's just that foolish to be there building. But in a rush, in torrential downpours, it's going to be a flash flood. You're not going to have a chance and your foundation will be tested. And so they're, they're catching this and the floods are coming and it actually says, it fell and great was its fall. The expectation of the person who is the wise builder is, and the house stood because it was rooted on the rock. No fanfare, no announcement, just expected. But then you get to the foolish builder and it says, and great was its fall. And you're like, oh. You can either, you can either be someone who learns. Like listen to Jesus giving this example, this parable. Would I rather learn from a parable or become the parable. It's powerful. I think another way to say it fell and great was the fall of it is its collapse was great because they didn't bother digging. When I think about foundation being accessed only through digging, it's going to take time and effort. You see, we are all building something. I want you to ponder that. You may even be here saying, Doug, please. I've heard this a thousand times. I, I, I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm a Christian. Like the, the, the particulars beyond that are just of little consequence. I invite you to consider the Apostle Paul's words when he was dealing with the church in Corinth that had a similar mindset. He said this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest. That means made known. For the day will disclose it. That means the day of judgment when Christ returns. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work, has, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So it is possible then, if I'm understanding Paul correct, to begin building on the foundation, to actually have a foundation and possess a relationship with Christ and everything you do after that be burned up. That's sobering. 
It just is. So then Jesus, having closed his sermon, I'm not sure if he took a seat or just stepped aside, but the response of the crowd is, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Four times in the book of Matthew, he uses that term, Jesus taught as one who had authority. And when he's, when he's saying, he, he uses this imperfect tense in the Greek, but it conveys this ongoing effect of the people. Like the people heard, and they literally just couldn't get over it. They could not get over how amazing the sermon was. You know what the text does not say? And they all surrendered their lives and gave themselves over to Jesus' lordship and followed hard after him till the day they died. No, it said they heard, they were amazed, his authority was incredible. It says nothing about their lives. So it is possible for you to hear a great sermon. It is possible for you to hear something like that, to read the text, and then to walk out and have a life that is unaffected, not changed in the least. You see, Jesus' authority was different than that of the scribes. The scribes, they had title but no substance. We all know those types of leaders. People that you look at and you're like, yeah, they can say all they want, blah, 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 blah. But their lives don't match what they're saying. And here's Jesus in title and substance possessing authority. And he's saying something to us. The righteousness of Jesus' followers, Stuart Weber says, will be evident in their relationship and in their daily choices. Some time ago, in 1982, um, a gentleman by the name of Buckminster Fuller created what's called the knowledge doubling curve. Go ahead and flip to the next slide. In it, he discovered, as long as we're talking about this amount of information that's overwhelming, that until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. That what people wrote down, what was captured, what was codified, what was uh, able to be tracked, doubled every hundred years. And then by the time 1945 rolled around, every 25 years. And then you can see it trending up. And currently, <clears throat> on average, and this is from the early 80s, the, the human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. And now, we're looking at this idea that uh, with the proliferation of knowledge and the information age of technology that we live in, roughly every 12 hours, the whole body of human knowledge is doubling. And you're like, man, that's incredible. And yes, it is. But I would say this. It shows nothing of transformation. In Jesus' warning, he's asking us, what will you do with the information I'm going to give you? Will you be like, whoa, this is incredible. Man, look at what Jesus said. He took the whole Old Testament and he packed it into three chapters in the, in the, in the book of Matthew and he just summarized it all. Isn't that just the most beautiful and wonderful and incredible thing ever? Yes, it is. Like literary, literarily speaking, it is a masterpiece. How he delivered it, what he said, how he said it is incredible. 
But I'm looking at the knowledge doubling curve and I'm saying, okay, if knowledge has continued to double according to this curve, what good is it? We still have wars. We still have famine. We still have desperate leaders. We still have ridiculous dictators. We still have the threat of nuclear war. We still have people who are living lives. We still have people who are uh, raping and murdering and killing all this stuff. And our knowledge continues to go up. What's the disconnect? What is the disconnect? It's that now we see information as something that's disconnected from me. When I used to get news, it was because the Jones had a child who broke their arm and they needed my help. And I'd run down the street. Or or the Smiths had a fire in their barn and I ran down the road with a pail of water to help. There was something I could do. The information and action paradigm has been severed because we have so much information. So much. The English writer and philosopher, and I'll close with a few thoughts here, Aldous Huxley, from the early to mid-1900s, unknowingly built on the very warnings of Christ. Perhaps you've heard of his novel, Brave New World, from the early 1930s. In it, he feared that society would be given so much information that they would be reduced to either passivity or egoism. Take that in for a minute. You're given so much information that you either just step back and you're like, well, what can I really do? You know, I see President Zelensky again begging for our help. What can I really do? Or we're going to be tending toward egoism. And I'll snap a video of myself and I'll post it on TikTok and I gave $100 to the campaign that gives water to the thirsty in Africa. I make it about me. And the truth then becomes drowned in a sea of irrelevance because it's all white noise. And Jesus knew that. I think I'd agree. Perhaps we have confused information or knowledge with being an actual apprentice to the ways of Jesus. When I think about an apprentice, I think about my first experience as a 15-year-old freshman working for my dad. And my dad walks in the room and says to me, you're working on the ceiling fan. I need you to cut the power downstairs in the basement. And I'm like, it's okay, dad. I flipped out the switch. We're good. He's like, no, cut off the power in the basement. Okay. And because I knew better, right? I'm like, I got this. What's this old guy going to teach me? And my dad made sure the power was on because he knew I didn't go downstairs. And I climbed up on my ladder and I had my tool in my hand and I cut the wire and it popped and I fell off my ladder, and I landed on my back, and I'm laying there. And my dad stands over top of me and goes, didn't shut off the power, did we? I'm like, no. And the reality was, that was the best teaching moment. He was saying, look, information doesn't lead to transformation. You actually have to do what you've been told. You have to do what's been revealed. And so, three suggestions for how to obey what you've heard today real quickly. Number one, am I giving Jesus a chance to be heard? Think about that for a minute. Aldous Huxley, in his book, also said this. The problem with this society is that they have forgotten or underestimated 
man's infinite appetite for distraction. And man, have they capitalized on it. I can't make it through an hour without an ad, a response, a text, a tweet, or whatever. So am I giving Jesus a chance to be heard? I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe set aside 15 minutes in the morning where your phone is not with you, even in the same room. Maybe practice some listening prayer where you don't speak, but you just listen for God. How about number two? Am I listening to the words of Jesus with others? I suggest life groups or mentoring in one-to-one relationships or with two or three other people. The problem when we seek out information on our own is that we typically reinforce this idea of an echo chamber. I'm only going to seek out the information that I want. And so, are you giving Jesus a chance to be heard? And are you listening for his voice with others? Primarily, his voice is coming through his word. How are you doing that? Be specific. And then finally, does my obedience, or you could add there, or lack thereof, in daily life reflect the authority of Jesus' words? These are humbling and sobering challenges, mainly because I live them on a daily basis. So when you go to preach a message, these are things that the Lord just kind of gently works into you. And so as we wrap up, I just want us to consider, this is, these are the words of Jesus. These are not my words, right? I'm not giving you something from my own intellect and saying, hey, I hope you get this. I hope you pass the test. I hope... Like these are the words of God and he's just asking you, what are you going to do with them? It's an invitation to obedience and then a life of blessing that comes as a result. So let me close this with prayer. There will be lunch in the all-purpose room. If you'd love to uh, chat afterwards and pray, I'll be here um, for a little while. But thank you so much for coming. Father, thank you for your many mercies to us. Thank you that, Lord, you are powerful. Thank you that, Lord, your words carry a weight of authority despite my response to them. And that ultimately, I can live under your blessing by obeying them or I can bear the difficulty when I don't. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us in Christ. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Have a blessed week.